when they, they told me, I remember the two doctors coming in and saying, you know, this, this is your new life. Fuck it up, buttercup, basically. And I went into complete, oh, poor me. So for three days, I did nothing. Um, I refused to eat. I refused to talk to anybody. They brought in the social workers. They brought in therapists. My name is Jake Thompson, your Chief Encouragement Officer, and this is the Compete Everyday Podcast, a show designed to encourage and equip you with the tools to build a winning mindset so you can build your winning life. Text PODCAST to 972-945-9113 to join our Morning Motivation Club and visit CompeteEveryday.com for past podcast episodes and to learn more about our resources and gear for ambitious people who are ready to start winning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Competitor Nation. You're in for a treat today. My goodness. We, as you have noticed, have a much longer episode today than we traditionally do for interviews. And that is because my friend Randy Brandt has just an incredible story of resilience. We get into some of the battles she had after switching her professional careers from a health standpoint that almost uh, caused her to lose her life. We talk about how she worked that long road and journey back, how she handled the disappointments, the frustrations, the good, the bad, but maintain this inner fire to keep moving forward one day at a time, one step at a time, and what she does now to build not only a successful business, but a successful life. I had coffee with Randy a few weeks ago. I'm having the opportunity to keynote the Michigan Realtors State Convention in late September, and Randy is on the board. And so we were having coffee when I was in Detroit for another keynote and talking about the event, but really just wanting to get to know her and her team and and learn a little bit of this mentality because I've seen bits and pieces on social, and she seems like this driven, I'm going to win, nothing's going to stop me individual And I gathered that through our conversation. And the more I learned about how she not only approaches helping others, but the things she's doing in life, I was like, I got to get you on the podcast. Because there's something very unique about all of these things that Randy's doing. And you're going to be incredibly surprised toward the end of the interview. She just casually slips in something that's a very, very big deal and how and why she's doing it. That I think it's lessons for all of us as leaders. I think there's something about having that inner fire. I think there's something about going through those moments where we question why is this happening to us when we're in the valley, when we're in the pit, when we're in the shadows. But despite being upset and and maybe wallowing there briefly, we don't stay there. We keep climbing out. We never quit in the valley. And Randy's life and career is a true testament to that. So I'm incredibly excited that you're going to get to meet and hear her story today. As we dive into the show... I think it's only fitting that tomorrow we release for our VIP members and email list a brand new drop called At All Cost. I didn't time it that way, uh, but thought it was really interesting after having this interview today with Randy, realizing I was wearing one of the shirts, and then looking at the schedule to realize what today her release day for her episode is and what tomorrow is. We have this killer new design that just says At All Cost. And it's not the idea that you cheat, that you cut corners, that you screw people over, but really this idea that every goal takes a certain amount of sacrifice and every goal has its price. 
There are no discounts. There are no shortcuts. There's only the hard way and hard work. At the end of the day, no one is coming to do it for you. No one is watching. No one is making sure you're on track. It's all on you. Compete every day at all costs. I I loved this design. I love this shirt. I was incredibly, incredibly excited about the release on it. You'll notice uh, tomorrow that we dropped it not only in a black shirt and a white shirt, so we have two versions of it, but we also rolled out this dark black stonewash style, a little more fashionable style shirt that it just pops on. And it's a killer design, killer print, but more importantly, it's a killer reminder that if you want to win, it's on you. That no one's coming to save you. No one's checking in to making sure you're doing the work. No one's finding out and asking you and quizzing you, did you give your best today? It's on you and that person you see in the mirror each and every single day. And you got to remind yourself that if you want it, it's on you to light the fire within you. Keep it burning until you get your goal. So if that is a message that rings true to you, if the conversation we have with Randy today starts to stroke that fire within you, I want to encourage you to head on over to the store in the next 48 hours, grab that new shirt, and use the code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get 15% off that order or anything else in the store you see. Because we got the new shirts, we got a flag, and if you haven't grabbed one yet, we've got the brand new Win Your Next Journal because you don't need to wait for January 1st to get working on your goals. Now, that's enough about all that. Strap in, get ready. You do not want to miss a second of today's conversation with my friend, Randy Brandt. Randy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I am excited for today's conversation, especially after we had a chance to sit down and chat, shoot, last week uh, in Michigan. And really, let's talk, let's kind of start here. What, from uh, being competitive, what does it mean for you personally today to day to be competitive? Uh, Two words, push through. It's you're always keeping going, uh, no matter what obstacle comes your way you've got a goal and you've got that, that finish line you have to get to. You have to get to. Okay. So you've had quite the interesting journey from not only career standpoint, uh, but life standpoint, because it is a miracle in and of itself that you are here talking with us today after something that happened earlier in life that it just first, you weren't going to survive and other things. So take me back so that our audience can learn a little bit more of your resilient spirit. Sure. So I am competitive by nature. I grew up playing every sport in the book, including ice hockey. So I grew up with a dad and three uncles. That's what they did. So I followed suit. So I've always had that team oriented competitive nature and uh, just ingrained in me. I did play competitively in college for volleyball. And so I got into real estate in December of 16 and after having a successful career, let's mind you in event and wedding planning. Yes. Yes. It was a great, great time. Uh, did not want to do that long-term I found out though. <laughs> so made the transition into real estate. I was what I call a baby realtor and then life took a turn. So in February of 2018, I turned 32 and seven days later, after not feeling well and having a fun trip by ambulance, I was hospitalized. Um, they had determined that I was in liver and kidney failure. 
Was it just like you weren't feeling well, then it was like, I can't get off the couch. Should we get to call an ambulance or like what was kind of that tipping point for the signal that this is serious? No. So I started just kind of feeling off. Like my body just was tired and I was lethargic and I just knew something wasn't right. So I'd gone to my primary care physician and I said, like, I didn't know how to explain to him that my body just didn't feel normal. And he was like, oh, it's probably nothing. You know, I'll give you uh, like just an antibiotic that kind of covers all broad spectrum. We'll take some blood, but I'm sure you'll be fine. So we did that. That was Tuesday, uh, February 20th. The 21st, I ended up actually leaving my office at lunchtime because I was just, I was exhausted. And I went home to my apartment that I was at at the time and just passed out on the couch. And I had two missed calls when I woke up three hours later from my doctor. And he had left me a voicemail saying, hey, you need to come back to the office. We think something happened with the lab, with your blood work. So the next morning I got up, it took me about an hour and a half to get ready, which normally is like a 20 minute, I'm in and out the door. And when I got to his office, um, I walked in and passed out. And so they called 911. And so what they had found and why they were calling me the day prior was that my blood work was showing that I was in liver and kidney failure. And my doctor just couldn't fathom that that was happening because he knows my history of how athletic I am. I work out five to six days a week. I play volleyball competitively still. And so it, it was rural though. It was what was happening. Uh, so they rushed me to the local hospital and they gave my father the call no parent ever wants of your daughter has been taken to the emergency room and she is not doing well. And that's when the journey began. Yeah. And, and let's, let's talk a little bit about that journey because you were not supposed to survive and then yes. not supposed to even operate normal life again whatsoever. Right. Correct. So the first five to six days. I don't remember a lot of it. Um, they were trying to get, basically my kidneys were the main focus. And so my nephrologist, which at one point I had 11 specialties on me because when one thing in your body shuts down, it's a ripple effect. Everything else goes afterwards. So every day my nephrologist would come in and we had like, again, we had this goal. There was a certain number we needed my kidneys to be at for me to be in what we called the safe zone. And so every morning he would come in and we, we were making progress, but we weren't there and we weren't there. Um, and so day seven, they ended up doing one round of dialysis on me, uh, which is not fun. And thankfully it did start working. And so my kidneys kind of kick-started back up. And so we were over that hurdle because at one point they had said, you know, Mr. Brandt, we don't know that your daughter's going to make it through this. Cause I was just, everything in my body was shutting down. So we got through that hurdle. Yay. Go up. And then first, medical physicians and medical people, they want to know why things happen. So they started testing me for figuring out what the cause of, you know, a 32 year old, healthy woman having liver and kidney failure randomly. And so one of the procedures that they did was a spinal tap. Uh, and I was never really good in science. It was not my forte, medical stuff. Like, I'm, it's just yeah. not me. Um, 
So I'd asked my, my head nurse, I was like, you know, what is the spinal tap procedure? So she told me that basically this procedure, they were going to take me into the room. It would be about 40 minutes total. Um, they would take a, you know, a, a needle up into my spine and take some spinal fluid and it would be okay. From the time they wheeled me into that procedure room to the time they wheeled me out was seven minutes. They did it so quickly. Um, the radiologist did not do it properly. And so the next morning, as the different specialties were rounding on me, my neurologist fellow came in and I was chatting with her and I said, you know, I can't read the board that's at the end of my bed. You know, it's got your name, mine had no food, uh, my nurses and, you know, stuff. so she's like, all right, well, it's probably nothing, but let's get a CT just to make sure. They wheel me down to the CT, they CT my, my brain. I no sooner got up to my room, um, and this was a day, so my dad was coming every other day at that point, because it's a 140 mile round trip for my dad from his home to the hospital. This was his day off, so my cousin was there at the time. They come in and they're like, you have a subdural hematoma, you are going to the ICU, intensive care unit, here you come. Another phone call. Mr. Brandt, Randy's gonna give you more gray hair than you already have. <laughs> So I ended up in the ICU with a subdural hematoma, basically a brain bleed. So what had happened is they had taken so much spinal fluid so quickly that it actually caused my brain to shift and hit the front of my cranium. So on the right side of my head, there was a big blood pocket, basically. So I spent five or six days in the ICU. They were monitoring me to make sure it didn't get any worse. And all I remember from that first night was, so my dad had come in, um, it was actually the first time in my hospitalization that my biological mom had come, which is a whole other fun story. Uh, but so my parents were there. All I remember is looking over and my dad pulled up a chair right next to the head of my bed and he just kept looking up. And I didn't realize until a day later, what he was looking at was my monitor. There was a monitor right here above my, the head of my bed. And they had told him that one of the lines on the monitor, if it spiked to a certain level, I would go in for a major, uh, emergency brain surgery. So he stayed up all night watching that until about 6.30 the next morning when they took me down for a repeat CT scan. And they saw that the brain bleed hadn't gotten worse. It hadn't gotten any better. And then they determined that I would not need brain surgery. So somewhere at that point, we were getting better with the, the organs, and then we had this setback, um, and somewhere in the, the time of me being in the ICU is when I endured a stroke. So I ended up losing all function from my belly button down. It was a fun time. So this at this point, we're about 20 days in to the hospitalization. Um, it's a ripple effect. So now we're back to why is this happening? What's going on? So they did a number of tests. Um, my entire file from my hospitalization is bigger than a ream of paper. I have it, it's actually in my, my other room. And so they did a biopsy of my quadricep. They did a biopsy of my sural nerve, which is right under that ankle bone. Um, and they just could not determine what was going on. Now, again, this was February, March of 18. I had gotten my license December of 16. So I was 14 months in the business. I was still working throughout my hospitalization. 
Um, it wasn't until I was in the ICU that one of my biggest clients found out that I was actually even in the hospital because when he comes into town, we always have coffee, um, chat about his portfolio, our game plan, things like that. And I had to cancel on him for the first time. Uh, and he actually did. He flew here from Argentina to come visit me and be there with me. So he is family. Um, so still working as much as I can because I had to have something to focus on that I could control. And at that point, that's all I could control because I literally couldn't control my body. So they did a bunch of testing. Days and days and days go by in my hospitalization. And at one point, I think it was around day 40, they finally said, you're never going to walk again. You will be wheelchair bound the rest of your life. Uh, we're going to send you up to the rehab floor at the top of the hospital, and they're going to teach you how to go home and live life in a wheelchair. Not a fun conversation. I, I was about to say, so uh, let's take a, a quick pause there. As somebody who grew up as an athlete, always active, obviously event and, and work style, you're always on the go. Like events, you're always on the go. Real estate, you're always on the go. How did you manage and, and handle that process? Because knowing you from now, um, very obviously I can see that fire, but how did you kind of work through that mentally to where you could either A, shut down with that news completely or <laughs> say, screw you, let's figure this out. So my initial reaction was not something I'm super proud of. Uh, I went into a three-day crisis mode. I kicked everybody out of my room. I refused to turn lights on. I refused to go into the rehab gym. Um, now, did you have mo like hand motor skills? Like you could use your arms, hands, everything. You just, I, nothing yeah. from the waist down. My upper body was good. Um, and I was able to like push myself up, but there was literally nothing I had. I mean, to the point where I was cathetered because yeah. I had no function and no, no control. So when they, they told me, I remember the two doctors coming in and saying, you know, this, this is your new life. Fuck it up, buttercup, basically. And I went into complete, oh, poor me. So for three days, I did nothing. Um, I refused to eat. I refused to talk to anybody. They brought in the social workers. They brought in therapists. They actually put me on suicide watch, which I joke about now because I was wheelchair bound. I couldn't do yeah. anything. I couldn't get out of my chair or my, my wheel, my, my bed. And they had put a, um, for anyone who's ever been in the hospital before, they will actually put a, um, uh, it's kind of like a siren, an alarm on your bed. So if, even if I tried to like roll off of my bed, an alarm would go off and everybody would show up. So I literally couldn't even move myself. Um, but so I kind of went into this whole, you know, oh, poor me, this isn't fair. Why do I deserve this? And I had a very real, angry, somewhat inappropriate conversation with the man upstairs about this. Like, what did I do to deserve this? Um, very selfish looking back at it now. So it's, for three hey, days. It's our it toughest sucked. moments. You're in the valley. It is. Um, so after the third day, I kind of, I woke up, I, I went into the gym I was there, not really there. Uh, and when I got back to my room, I kind of had another private conversation. And I just told him that, you know, if you let me live the life that I want and what I'm used to, I will do everything in my power to try and make somebody else's life better. Uh, and 
you know, I'm not an overly religious person. I was raised, uh, my family is a Catholic. And so I do, you know, I have a, a relationship with God. And I think that was the first time I actually truly asked him for something. And uh, let me ask so you a question and, and mm-hmm. you don't have to answer this. Were you at peace with either answer you got? Absolutely not. No, okay. way too, way too stubborn. No, it yeah. was going to be, we're going to get through this come hell or high water. <laughs> I was just hoping I would get the answer that I wanted. <laughs> um, true, true transparency. <laughs> so uh, going through the motions, you know, going into the, the PT gym and my, my physical therapist, my occupational therapist, they were great. They were very supportive, you know, and they knew that I didn't want to learn, but I went through like how to do laundry in a wheelchair and how to safely transfer myself from my bed to my chair and, and things like that. And then I had one crazy therapist who he's like, what, what's it going to hurt? Let's just try everything we can and see if anything works. I mean, they, they stuck electrodes to my butt. They did everything in their power. And one day, um, they, hung me from the ceiling through those kind of the, the Johnny jumpers, like for the little babies you put in the, the archway yeah. and they, they jump. I mean, I think, I think about it like old school fitness where you would hang upside down just to try to make yourself taller. Well, yeah, kind of that too. Yeah. So they hung me from the ceiling. They had, my feet were resting on the floor. Um, I couldn't feel anything. And they put a full length mirror in front of me and they said, you know, so I'm in this big harness and they're just, just look at your legs, just focus on your legs. Okay. So I'm sitting there or standing there and I'm just watching my legs and 10, 15 minutes go by. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, my left foot drags itself and I take a step and I started walking that day. And that was day 49, I believe of my hospitalization. And I was about to say, and you have videos of you walking with this mirror. Talk, yes, talk, talk to me. I was about to say, talk to me a little bit about from your space, headspace, the just during this time, I think about the gap. And, and when I when I mean the gap is like where you were physically able to do versus where you are now. And sometimes that gap is so far, especially when you're walking, that it's just like maybe I'm just gonna be in a wheelchair. Like, screw this, I'm not gonna try. Versus little progress wins. How did you make sure you were at least celebrating those little bitty wins of of improvement, even though they were so tiny? So there, there was a a younger woman. So when I was in the rehab floor, I was the youngest by like thirty or forty years. You know, a lot of people that grew up there are struggling from getting over a respiratory issue older in life, or you know things like that. So I was very young up there. Um, and there was another, another lady who was similar to my early thirties, late twenties who had come in. I don't know her situation. I don't know why she was there. All I know is that she had to kind of relearn how to walk as well. And so her and I were both in the gym one day and I was willing to try anything. I wasn't really super excited because I'd already been told that I was never going to walk again. And I remember sitting across the gym watching her and she absolutely refused to do anything just just had completely nope not doing it take me back to my room like give given up on everything wasn't even willing to try and I kind of had that internal dialogue of I don't give up I'm not going to quit I've never been a quitter 
Um, I've always played team sports and my team's relying on me. And in my brain, it was between my family and my, my clients, my real estate business, they're relying on me to get better. Um, so that was one of the big, like first big wins. Um, and then for anybody who knows anything about Detroit sports, um, the late Ted Lindsay was actually, he's a hall of famer through the Red Wings. He was in the rehab. Um, he was on the rehab floor the same time I was, and I had known him through my work with the Red Wing Alumni Association and things. And he was such a fun man. So I would go into his room. I wheeled myself into his room and he'd always be watching like the tigers or whatnot. And him being him, he didn't get, he didn't have to eat the hospital food. They would bring him in special food. Um, and I remember one night they brought in his favorite restaurant and he had this big piece of carrot cake. And I looked at him and was like, I wheel in. I'm like, Mr. Lindsay, he kind of looks over slowly at me. He goes, yes. And I'm like, you share that carrot cake with me today? He goes, not till you can stand. <laughs> All right, game on. Um, and so he is actually, he's in the back of the video that I have on my social media of my first steps. He's in the, the room or in the gym there with me. Um, and I, I've, there's a very long video, like a 10 minute video of it that I don't post. Uh, but the end of that video that is not posted is me looking at him saying, Mr. Lindsay, I'm on my feet. Where's my cake? And I got my carrot cake that night. I love it. I love it. Okay. So how long, how long were you in that hospital going through that process until you were able to leave? And then obviously how long was the journey then to get back to more well-roundedness in terms of your physical abilities? So when I went up into the rehab floor, again, they've got those um, charts on the wall, got your name, your ability, and then at the rehab floor, it's your, your, um, breakout day, your, your yeah. leaving day. That was always empty for me. It was always blank. I never had a goal of what day I was going to get out of the hospital until that day I took my first steps. And so they put it on there. And for the first time it said April 22nd, 2018. And so I, I've been marking days just because so I had tick marks of how many days I'd been in the hospital, but now I finally had a days till I get to go home. So I ended up spending 60 full days in the hospital. Uh, it was my vacation, as I call it. Uh, and so Sunday, April 22nd, 2018, at about one in the afternoon, I was released and went home in a wheelchair uh, with a walker. And so that wheelchair never actually left my apartment transparency. I use my walker and I looked like a cross between the young Forrest Gump. If you've ever seen the movie when he's like in his braces and he's dancing yeah. across the floor and Elvis, when he did all his like weird wiggle hip shakes, that's what I looked like. I was a hot mess express. I had no control of my lower body. It was walking though. Um, I, my legs had never been so thin, I lost all muscle mass, obviously. So I looked like this little bean hole. Um, but that following Monday, April 23rd, I was back in my office. My my boss had agreed to come pick me up because I had my license revoked. The state of Michigan, when you have a stroke, they take your license. So that's a new fun challenge. Okay, how are we going to be a realtor with no license? 
Yeah, that's what I was going to ask while you were even (laughs) in the hospital. How did you keep the business going? Because for those that aren't familiar, like it's, it's not like you have a guaranteed salary. As a realtor, you eat what you kill. And so you talked about continuing to work. And I'm thinking, well, you have showings and you have closings and you have all sorts of things that physically you're at, especially 2018. I know a ton has changed after 2020. How did you manage that with yourself and even a support team to be able to keep at least some of those client projects moving? Sure. So I, my first year in the business uh, in 2017, I was making conversation with somebody at a bar, full transparency. Um, and conceitedly, I thought he was hitting on me. Turns out he bought five houses from me three days later. Uh, so he was, a, he was an investor partner. And so I had been working with them for just over a year now. And my first year in the business, we bought 39 units together, um, which is great, except they were all under $35,000. So I busted my butt for my business and I loved it because I learned a lot. It was all in downtown Detroit. We were flipping homes and getting rentals available for the very large majority of section eight housing vouchers that we have but we don't have enough homes for them. So we were doing that. So I was still running that. And a lot of that, because I had learned so much from them, I knew what their, their numbers needed to look like. I did have a newer agent in than I was who was kind of opening doors and walking through and taking videos for me so I could kind of see what everything looked like and determine whether that house is going to fit our needs or not. Um, I only had two like actual residential buyers during my hospitalization and um, my office handled the closings. They were under contract already. They, they yeah. finalized it for me. So I had support in that aspect, thankfully. And then how long, once you got home, started back to work, how long until you were kind of self-sufficient, we'll say you were able to drive again, do anything you needed? So I was in my walker, I have to go back to that timeline. April 22nd, I was released. I was in my walker. Um, I was in outpatient PT three times a week. And I was upgraded to a cane in beginning of June, which is also when I went back and had to take my driver's class and test again. Um, I did not actually get to take my driver's test until almost July of 2018. And once I got my license back in July, so I was about three months without a license working. A lot of money was spent on Uber. I should have bought stocks in that earlier. Um, (laughs) So there was a time uh, with my cane, it was late July, early August. Um, I had either tripped over something, something happened. And I threw the cane and I don't know where it is and I've never seen it since. So, um, but so August of, tw- of 2018, I was back in action. I feel, if, you know, I was in the gym. I was back to my routines. Um, I did play volleyball that winter. I obviously it was all summer. I was out, but I did end up going back that winter. season. So anybody that is clicked on the show notes at this point and has looked at Randy's Instagram, you're thinking, wait a minute, because you've got workout videos and on the go, like there's no sign wherever that you were literally at this near death experience. And what, what I found even more 
I would even say humorous uh, from our conversation is you've rebuilt this body. You've put so much into your strength and building it. And, and then like what, three months ago, four months ago, you were on the way to a, a an open house or showing and we're in a car accident that like totally messed you up from an injury standpoint, which by the way, we'll note you still got the house. You still got the deal. I definitely want to throw that in. Uh, yes, did. But talk to me about going through that process after a car accident, which is a really scary incident as well from a mental standpoint, and then getting back what, what you built with your body prior to that moment and how it helped you with the recovery since. So it's funny we're having this conversation today. So I had, um, nine weeks ago yesterday was my car accident. Uh, a lady crossed over three lanes of traffic, nearly hit me head on, um, Cars were totaled. I ended up back in the hospital. My poor father, another phone call. Mr. Brandt, your daughter's in the ER again. I swear. Poor man. Um, so I was talking to my physical therapist this morning because I, when I first went in for like my initial consult, when I was able to finally start moving a little bit more, um, I told him, I was like, I'm going to be a PIA, complete pain in your ass. I'm going to push you. I am going to not listen. I'm going to push me myself harder than you want me to. That is just who I am. And so every, every day I'm there three days a week right now. Still, I'm always like, okay, Jim, I, I did this. What's my reward? He's like, high five. And I was like, no, like, can I go mountain biking? Can I go golf? Can I even go to the driving range? Can I run with my dog? Cause I still can't do that. He's like, nope, not yet. Not yet. Um, and so I'm, I'm always like joking with him. And today I was just super tired. Uh, I am struggling to sleep because I haven't had any physical exertion in nine weeks and my body's used to it that now I have issues sleeping. So I was kind of just out of it. And he looked at me, he's like, what's wrong? And I was like, you know what? We don't have an end game. There's no finish line because I have I have no date to look forward to. And he's like, I can't give you one. This is going to be a long process. Um, I had some neck injuries. I, I had a concussion. My, the, the big problem we have dealing with now is that I actually, during or in the, the impact, you know, so she, I was able to swerve my car. So she didn't hit me head on, but she hit my driver's side. So it kind of jolted me crossbody and I had my seatbelt on, which is a good thing. However, your body's not supposed to move that way. Uh, so yep. I have a torn, torn abdominal muscle, a broken rib, and then a, a frayed labrum, which is the, the tissue in your hip socket. So we did find out I do have to have surgery on my abdominal muscle. I'm not scheduled yet because, well, that's a long time and I am not ready for that. So it's one of those things where it's going to be a long process. Um, and because I don't have that, that end game or that, that finish line in sight, I am starting to struggle with keeping myself motivated on it. Um, it's a constant struggle, but it is, it, what am I going to do? You know, I can go back to the, oh, poor me, you know, lay at my house, not make any money, not help my client, not pay my bills. And then where am I at? Or I can push through. So that's what I do every day. You said something to me while we were having coffee that I immediately wrote down once I got back in my car around the pain lights the fire. And we were talking specifically with the hunger to work and how you maintain 
your hunger uh, from a work standpoint in an industry that we know there's complacency, right? You sell a couple of good homes, you take your foot off the gas and you panic and do it again. It's this roller coaster that a lot of people ride on. And you do something I found fascinating with how you manage your money, specifically your checking account. And the wild part is I heard Jay Leno say the other day he did the same thing, which was unbelievable to me. So tell us a little bit how you in a sales role, keep your fire lit professionally with this, I've always got to be prospecting, building relationships, checking in with my clients, making sure they're taken care of. Absolutely. So um, long and short of it is my checking account has bare minimum dollars in it. Uh, so even when I have a really good closing, I have my finance department uh, at my office. They only put enough to where... I can get gas, I can go to lunch, but there is very little money in my day-to-day checking. And that's the account that when I pull up my app for my, my bank, that's the account I see. So every day I check, oh crap, I need to make money. There's not enough money in this account. Now, realistically, my money goes elsewhere. It's other, you know, it goes back into my business. Obviously I've got another one for all of my, my bills and then my savings account. And then I've got my, my, uh, rental properties have their own other entities, but my day to day, I start every morning when I check that bank account, it's, oh crap, how am I going to pay my bills? And that's, you have to, cause I've, I've had people come into my office and then, you know, they see my, my grind or my productivity, or they see me, um, traveling and chatting with other realtors around the country. And they ask, how do I be like you? cut yourself off. It's that simple. You know, um, I am single, so I have, I'm a single income household. If I don't make money, I don't pay my bills. Nobody else is going to pay them for me. So when I have, uh, there was a lady in my office who she's thinking she's lived a very comfortable life with her husband and his, his career. And he's nearing retirement and she, she wants to get into doing something that's her own. And she kept saying, I just, I don't have the motivation. I, I, I'm just not able to. I said, it's simple. That salary that has given you the life that you and your husband are accustomed to is gone. Put it in a savings account. Now that very small checking account, how are you going to pay your bills for next month? And I told her, I said, you do that. And a hundred percent, you, your business will take off. Um, she chose not to, and that's her fine. That's fine. Um, it's create, but there it's are- creating that hunger. It's creating that hunger. And and you Correct. said something. Well, I'll edit out if you want me to. But you yeah. even told me after. So when you got out of event planning, you sold that business. So there was uh-huh. income there put away that you even went without power for a weekend because you had a closing get pushed and you didn't uh-huh. want to touch your savings or anything else. So you just let them cut off your electricity for the weekend uh-huh. and then got it flipped back on. Yep. Yeah. Most so people are like, I, I would just pull that from savings. Nope. No, because you do it once you're just going to keep pulling it. And it's, it's amazing how quickly you can blow through money without realizing it. Oh, so yeah. absolutely. When I, when I sold my, my event planning business, that money, a lot of it went to to my savings and to 401s and things like that. Because again, you know, I've been in sales since gosh, over a decade. Um, so I've never 
I think I had a W-2 job when I was like 23. Been a long time since I've had one of those. Um, yeah. So you always have to plan ahead. And so I put all that money in there. I was, I was bartending part-time just really to try and get more business and, and kind of keep myself afloat. And then realized soon after that being at the bar until 2 a.m., cleaning it till three, and then being back in my office by 8 a.m., because you have to be stringent with your, your time. My days, even though now I'm not able to work out the way I'm used to, I'm still up at the same time every morning. And now I'm doing my PT workouts. I'm still keeping my routine because consistency brings productivity. It does. And it does. Tell, I want to ask you something about that, though, consistency-wise, because your business, as I know, uh, has a lot of things outside of your control you have to deal with. You have agents on the other side of the table, and I've seen situations where they don't know what they're doing, which impacts your clients. You have changes in the market. How do you maintain, I would say, control of your motions over things outside of your control? Because you've had to deal with it on a personal level, and you deal with it every day on a professional level. Mm -hmm. There are things that you are unable to control to a sense. I try every day to try and come up, like I'm always planning two steps ahead. It's, it's something I did in the event business of, okay, if something happens, like my clients will never know there's a problem until literally the property is burning down. So I make a joke, but I also tell both my wedding clients in the past and now my, my real estate clients, I am a duck on the water. I am calm, serene. Life is golden. Under the water, though, I'm dying. But that's okay, because that's why they hire us. We fix the problems before they even know about it. And then we come to them with a solution. I had a boss once tell me, don't bring me a problem without a possible solution. Doesn't have to be the right one. Do you have to have some sort of answer? And so I do that in every aspect. So yes, during COVID, for me at least, I would say 80% of my deals, I handled both sides of the transactions, even though there was an agent on the other side, because I had to get my clients to the closing line. And so what am I going to do? I can gripe about it and just say, well, pick rocks, not my problem. Or I can do it, have, be the absolute best experience for my clients and get us all there knowing that not only then do the other side see it that I've done so well to make this happen, my clients also, which is why less than seven years in the business, I'm hundred percent referral based right now. Yeah. Which, which is one thing I was telling, I was actually bragging about you to uh, uh, my wife and a couple of people in the business uh, about it. Cause I was telling one, I was telling them about the lower bar to entry in Michigan in terms of uh, education, not in terms of like, yeah formal education, but in terms of like requirements to be a certified real estate agent and, and getting involved in it is very different than Texas. But I was telling them about your referral business. And especially with my wife, I was like, oh yeah, she was, she did this, this. And she was like, I don't know many people that do that. I was like, I know, right. It was so cool. Um, and so I, I, I say all that to praise you for, for the hustle and dedication, because obviously you've gone through very tumultuous life circumstances and you could have easily thrown in, thrown in the towel. Right. Mm -hmm. And we, you have the, but when you were in the Valley and you were in the shadow, you didn't stay there. You wallowed in it for a little bit, like we all do, but you chose to get out of it. And so now I feel like anything that's a frustration from a work standpoint, it's like, 
just spilled salt. Like it's not any big deal because you've already gone through so much worse. Is that a pretty accurate assessment? 100%. Life could always be worse. Like, yes, I had a deal die at the beginning of this week. Was it rough? Of course. It wasn't meant to be though. It wasn't the right fit for what my clients were looking for. And that's okay. I still have those clients, you know, the listing agent got a little angry, but sorry, you know, you weren't willing to negotiate. Um, I have had a client fire me last year. Not a great feeling. At the end of the day though, I did everything in my power to give them the best experience. They just chose to go in another direction. I will say I still follow up and they have yet to be able to buy a home yet. So I feel a little good about that, but it is, it's, you know, I, um, I learned after I got out of the hospital, I, I learned that through my dad's, my dad's primary care physician, um, that my dad has been diagnosed while I was in the hospital. He didn't tell me, but he had been diagnosed with a incurable cancer. That's a huge wake up call. Um, my dad has been always a huge support of my business. He still is today. But I realized there was one day I was, I was with him at dinner and we were, you know, just chit chatting. And then I was on my phone and he's always, again, he's always been very supportive, but I realized that me answering that message was not as important as the fact that my dad will not be here forever. So it's one of those things where, and I tell my clients, and I never thought in a million years, I was always the, the, the realtor that was at your beck and call, right? Not always the smartest thing, do not recommend it. Uh, but it was something I had to learn. And so when I meet new clients, whether it's on the phone or at the table, wherever, I say, I do work seven days a week for certain hours. However, there are more Sundays than not. I am with my father and unless something is absolute dire need, you will not hear from me until the following day because that is time with my dad that I don't have a finite time amount with. Like we're on a time crunch. Um, and people are very receptive to it. And I never thought that that would be the case. So yeah. Uh, it's setting those expectations happen. up front, which is, yeah, I mean, that's kind of any relationship, right? It's setting the expectations up front. Uh, mm -hmm. and then kind of honoring those. And there's occasions you're going to break that rule of like, Hey, I'm going to answer this late. And then it's right. seen as even more above and beyond versus I just expect you to always answer it. I, I want to ask you one last thing as we wrap up that I think would be incredibly valuable for the listeners. You do things that most, I would think agents don't think about. For example, you flew to Midland not too long ago. Mm -hmm. 110 degrees, uh, to speak nice. and teach. Uh, and you're not really getting compensated for that. It's not like you're selling homes in Texas. You're focused in Michigan, but you see things very differently from a relationship building, adding value to others and long-term partnerships. And I'm curious where you learn that and what's kind of your mentality on adding value to others, because I, I find it very unique in this industry. So kind of there's, there's two big ones that is that is one going back from being a team sports player, you, you are only as good as your weakest link. And so my job on my teams were always to never be the weakest link and to support as much as I can. The other part is, you know, when I had that conversation in the hospital with the man upstairs, and I said, if you give me the life I want, I will 
do everything in my power to make other people's lives better. This is part of me fulfilling that, you know, word, because my word is everything, especially in real estate. Like if our names are tarnished, good luck. So I'm not going to get, you know, I'm definitely not going to start with the man upstairs and lying there and it's just going to trickle down. So this is part of my way of giving back is trying to help others however I can, whether, you know, whether we're talking real estate or we're talking overcoming hardships. Um, there's, there's just so many different ways. I didn't even realize people hearing my story would impact and it's been fulfilling for me. Um, I do actually, you know, create relationships with uh, these people that I meet. So anytime I go to an association or an office in another state, uh, one of the things I do is when I'm on the plane coming back home is I'm writing out postcards of, it was so great to meet you to anybody that I've got their contact from so that they're then, you know, it's more than just a speaker coming in and leaving. You never hear from them. I ask them to go down to my social call me, contact me if they have any questions, needs, if they have any referrals. Um, so it's really just that it's, it's fulfilling my obligation to the word that I said I would keep. Um, the other part of that is I became a licensed foster parent. So I've had three foster kids in my home in the last couple of years, and that's hard and amazing all at the same time. Yeah, that's, that's an, um, another emotional roller coaster in and of itself that you deal with. Mm-hmm. which speaks a lot. It's my life is pretty good and I can control what my life looks like. Not everybody can say that, especially young children who weren't asked to be put into the situations they were born into. So as hard as it is for me, it's 10 times harder for them. So if I can give them some sort of normalcy and show them what love is and what happiness truly feels like, even in the short time they're with me until they go on to their next, you know, pathway. Um, Two of my kids have been adopted out to new homes. My other one, uh, she's back with mom and dad and doing very well. So I'm just there. I was, I was described once because I was struggling once with my, and I was in therapy. Thankfully the state does offer therapy services for foster parents. And my, my therapist at the time, she reminded me, she's like, you have to realize these children have no light at the end of their tunnel. You come into their life and you're their light. How can you say no after that? It's true. It's so it's true. simple. It's, it's so simple and yet so impactful of, yep, yes, it's hard to listen and have to deal with the outburst and the emotional things that they don't know how their little brains to process but it could be a lot worse. So, yep, I'll put myself through it happily. And when I had had siblings said at one point, I had a two and a four-year-old during COVID when Michigan was shut down for 10 weeks, running a real estate business. Uh, I'd never been more productive. I was so dead set on schedule because also children thrive on schedules. Yep. We we had our routines um, and it was great. And I had two little little helpers that came on showings with me. I'm a single oh, parent. It is what it is. I will say in wrapping up, you have more than honored that promise commitment 
trade, we'll say, uh, request in the hospital uh, just from that reason, uh, because I know a lot that you put, you do professionally to help other agents. Um, and as we laughed, you, you are willing to help any of them that are willing to do the work and obviously traveling the country and doing a lot of this stuff, uh, taking time away from your own business to help others, not only, not even including what you're doing as a foster parent. So I want to commend you on that. I want to praise you and encourage you on that. As I know the people listening to this do, Randy, we know you work with people all over the country, moving to from Michigan. You've got agents and partners all over the country as well. Where is the best place for us to follow along with the work you're doing and get connected? Social, uh, Instagram and, or I'm still old school, my Facebook. Uh, I've had that Facebook since you had to have a college email address. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, so okay. there's where, yeah, that's where you can see me as a person. Yes, part of me, I am a realtor. Um, one of the things that I like to remind agents is that you need to be the go-to person, not just the real estate agent. Uh, I have clients that come to me for the most random things sometimes, but it, I've built that relationship where they know they can come to me. And if I don't have an answer, I know somebody who does. And that's why the business comes full circle and it just comes repeating for me. Um, Love it. That's awesome. Well, Randy, we've got links to your Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn here in the show notes. Uh, great to get connected. If you're in the real estate space, uh, you definitely want to make sure they connect with you uh, because you will be at the national convention coming up here. What is it? Anaheim this year? Yeah. Yes. So yeah. Uh, I will be in Anaheim in November for NAR's convention. Um, I'm actually going to Chicago next week for NAR for our uh, Young Professional Network Advance two-day conference. I sit on the advisory board, so we're running that. Super exciting. And then and we then, have your state conference, which I have the honor to be one of the keynote speakers for in late September, which is going to be a lot of fun in downtown Detroit. Yes. I'm just very excited that you're coming back. You're, you're just stuck with a Michigander. So we're going to make you like an informal in Michigander, whether you like it or not. That's okay. Yeah. I mean, they're all going to like me except for the Wolverine folks, just because of the, the TCU game last year, but that's okay. There's plenty of Spartans and anybody else. We're good. We got Chippewas Go. and Broncos and yeah, all, all of them. I got, I got it figured out. Uh, Randy, sure. this has been so much fun. Thanks for making the time to come on the show this week. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Compete Everyday Podcast. To get in touch with the team, drop us an email to podcast at competeeveryday.com. And to find out more about our resources, content, and gear that will help you build that winning mindset so you better compete for your best life, visit competeeveryday.com.